everybody. Welcome to one of the coldest natural night naturalist nights we'll probably have this winter. Um, this naturalist night is a that's all right. It's a recording for the folks watching. Yeah, that's right. Uh, sorry. Um, Nationalist Nights is a 10-week free speaker series in the Roaring Fork Valley hosted by partners in partnership with uh, Wilderness Workshop, the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies, and Roaring Fork Audubon. We encourage you to check out the displays and literature on the front tables and after tonight's presentation. Uh, talks hosted each week through early March in Carbondale at 6 p.m. and here at ACES at Helm Lake uh, at 6 p.m. on Thursdays. Tonight's sponsors, kind of flashing on the screen here. Special shout out to our featured sponsor, Ken Ransford PC. These businesses uh, provide financial and in-kind donations which cover the travel expenses for our speakers and the cost of having Grassroots TV video, the presentations and making Naturalist Nights possible. Grassroots TV airs presentations on channel 12 Up Valley and channel 82 Down Valley. Videos will also be available on our organization's websites and social media feeds in the coming week. We also li live stream each of the Naturalist Night Speaks on either Wednesday or Thursday evening on both Wilderness Workshop and ACES Facebook pages. Uh, make sure you also sign in if you didn't after the presentation. And if you're looking for continuing education certificates, uh, please see me after the presentation as well. And last but not least, um, after the whole talk, we'll be having a little get-together at Aspen Brewing Company uh, for $15 pitchers for a little bit of social, uh, socializing. Next week's presentation will be by Aaron Derwinson. His talk is on when the well runs dry, securing water for people and nature in the Colorado River Basin. And now for me to introduce tonight's speaker, Bill Anderegg. Bill Anderegg is a PhD is an, an assistant professor at, of biology at the University of Utah. His research centers around the intersection of ecosystems and climate change. In particular, he strives to understand the future of Earth's forests in a changing climate. Massive mortality events of many tree species in the last decade prompt concerns that drought, insects, and wildfire may devastate forests in the coming decades. Andreg studies how drought and climate change affect forest ecosystems, including tree physiology, species interactions, carbon cycling, and biosphere-atmosphere feedbacks. This research spans, to broad, spans a broad array of spatial scales, from xylem cells to ecosystems, and seeks to gain a better mechanistic understanding of how climate change will affect forests around the world. It is my honor and great pleasure to welcome Bill to our 2019 Natural Science Series with his talk, what is the future of Colorado's aspen forests with climate change? Bill? Thanks so much. Well, thanks, Patrick, for that introduction, and thank you all for coming out tonight. Uh, special thanks to ACES for inviting me here. It's been a, a pleasure to be here and to, to visit and give these two seminars. Um, great, so uh, I wanna first tell you where this story starts. And uh, the story that I'm gonna tell you tonight, for me, starts down a, a small, dusty Colorado mountain road, not too far from here, in the San Juan Mountains. And uh, I grew up outside of Cortez, Colorado, 
spending a lot of my childhood on mountain roads like this one, camping, hiking, backpacking, fishing. And how one of the reasons why I'm here tonight and why I went into science is thanks to this mountain road for two, two parts. First, it kind of really gave me a love of the, the Rockies and um, of how forests work and these, these fantastic creatures that are trees all around us um, and other creatures like our, our friend the deer here. Uh, and second, when I came back to these landscapes, just starting out uh, my PhD, I went back to, this is actually one of our family campsites in the San Juans, and I went back to some of these campsites that I, that I grew up in, and I started to see place after place that looked like this. These just skeletal forests of, of dead trees, um, in many cases kind of looking like a moonscape, and it, it really struck me, something profound is going on here. There's a really visible and visceral change in these forests just in my lifetime. And that really kicked off the questions that have led me here today. So what's going on with our forests? How much is this a sign of the future and what can we do about it? So that's the story I wanna tell you tonight. First, just a, a brief background on what are some of the challenges and stresses that forests might face in a changing climate. Then I'm gonna talk about uh, what I call the triple threat to Rocky Mountain forests and talk in particular about drought because that's been a lot of, of my research. And then end with a little bit of what are some of the things we can do and what, what do we know right now and what do we not know right now that we need to, to figure out. So I, I'm gonna start tonight actually with this picture. So imagine you come home and you see this picture. Pretty terrifying thought. No one was at home so nobody's hurt but this is a devastating outcome, right? And does anyone have a guess what the odds are of a, of a house fire in a given year? Want to throw out a number, a percentage? In Colorado, uh, anywhere in the US. What? 1%. 1%. That was, that's uh, pretty much spot on. It's a little bit under 1%. Um, thank you for being brave. <laughs> So, so why, why are we thinking about house fires and why do I want to kick off with house fires? And the answer is it really nicely illustrates this fundamental concept for climate change and for forests of risk. And risk has two key components. First is what we just nailed, right? The 1%, that's the, what are the odds of something happening? But the second key component is what are the consequences? What are the impacts? In the case of a house fire, they're pretty drastic. And Ultimately, even though in many cases the odds might be quite low, we all, all of us take steps to, to really ad to mitigate that risk in our daily lives for, for lots of things, right? For driving our cars, um, in the case of house fires, things like building codes, correct wiring, and some of the individual steps we take, insurance, homeowners insurance, right? So we're all kind of familiar with mitigating even low probability events in our daily lives. So why does this matter for climate change and for forests? Well, similar to our house fire case, we don't have, and in many cases never will have, perfect information. We won't, it's, it's seldom that we'll know everything, but it's also seldom that we'll know nothing. Science and going out and collecting data about the world can really help us estimate the consequences, that part of the risk, 
and sometimes the, some of the probabilities, how likely a given outcome is. Critically, as with the case of our house fire, there are often costs to acting and costs to not acting. So insurance costs us money, but on the other hand, if you don't have homeowner's insurance and you come home to that site, that's a big cost as well. And finally, this is why I think it's constructive to think of climate change and forests in this risk framework. We take personal actions and societal and policy actions to grapple with and try to mitigate risk all the time. So this, is, um, this feels like kind of a, a global and impossible problem, but it really connects to things in our everyday lives like insurance that we think about all the time. So of course the context on this is that on our, our blue-green marble floating here in space, temperature's been rising over the past 120 years, basically since we've had uh, thermometers in the late 1800s. Now, when we're talking about human-caused climate change, where the signal really emerges from the noise, from the background variability, we're mostly talking from about 1960 to present, the past 50 to 60 years. Something that I find amazing is we've actually known the fundamental physics and mechanisms of climate change for over a hundred years. And it's a, a, a story of a couple um, sort of seminal scientists. So in 1824, French physicist Fourier did some calculations on how far the earth was from the sun and realized it ought to be freezing here. It ought to be, well, it is freezing tonight, but it ought, to be, it ought to be much colder. Basically, their liquid water should not really exist on planet Earth based on the distance we are from the sun. Therefore, there must be some sort of blanket or greenhouse around the Earth. Had no clue what it was or how the physics worked, but he identified there had to be a greenhouse effect. Now, fast forward 30-some years, and the British physicist Tyndall does these experiments shining light into different tubes and figures out that certain gases absorb energy. Pretty fundamental step here, right? That gases can trap heat. Finally, in 1897, the Swedish chemist Arrhenius puts two and two together and figures it out. Figures out that CO2 is one of these gases that traps heat. It's a greenhouse gas. And there's a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere. This has to be some of the main role of the greenhouse effect. And Arrhenius figured out that humans were adding CO2 to the atmosphere and that's gonna warm the planet up. He did some calculations on just pen and paper and the number for doubling, how much, how much Earth's temperature would go up for doubling CO2 in the atmosphere is still roughly within the range of our best supercomputers today. Super cool, right? That he basically figured out knowing a, a bit of fundamental physics and some math that what, what a lot of modern climate science has indeed confirmed today. Um, interesting side note here, actually we've learned in the past couple years that Tyndall was not the first person to discover this, that actually an American woman named Eunice Foote discovered it several years earlier and was not able to present her own results at the scientific, comp at the scientific proceedings. Um, and actually hence her, her likeness has kind of been lost to history. But kind of an important and cool update to our, our understanding of climate science. Now let's fast forward 60 years. So 1897, right, 120 years ago, Arrhenius figured out the fundamental physics of the greenhouse effect and that it would heat up the planet. So a scientist named Charles Keeling starts to actually measure CO2 in the atmosphere in 1959. 
And as you can see, it's gone up. Pre-industrial, it was about 280 parts per million. Today, we're at about 405. And this, this black line is kind of the annual average, but you, you'll see there's a very pronounced sawtooth there, right? That's really cool because that is basically plants on planet Earth, really trees in the Northern Hemisphere, that as it turns into summer in the Northern Hemisphere and trees put out leaves and pull all that carbon out of the atmosphere, the CO2 concentration goes down. And then as we hit winter and all the leaves fall off and start to decompose back into the atmosphere, it goes back up. So this is the breathing of planet Earth's trees that we can see in the atmosphere. Super cool. So how do we know that humans are causing climate change? Five basic lines of evidence. And the first one we've known for 120 years that the fundamental physics was figured out in the 1890s. Greenhouse gases trap heat. Second, from Earth's past, we know that CO2 and temperature were very tightly coupled and they probably uh, sort of accelerated and, and uh, influenced each other. Third, our best models can do really quite a good job of predicting what happened if you kind of put in what humans did into the atmosphere. And if you don't put in greenhouse gases, they can't predict what happened. Fourth, there's basically no known physical driver that is actually consistent with the data, and I'll show you some of that in a little bit. And fifth is this approach called climate fingerprints. So this is a, a fun, really fun thing. This is where we get to do CSI planet Earth, right? If you, you enter a crime scene and you find a body and you want to know what's the culprit, you start to scout out for fingerprints. And the key part about fingerprints is that you can kind of rule out one culprit and support a different culprit or, or test two different hypotheses. So I'm going to walk you through one of these fingerprints that I think is, is, is really pretty neat. Um, so if, uh, if our main driver of climate change were the sun, were changes and increase of the radiation coming from the sun, we'd actually have a very different prediction of how much daytime should warm compared to nighttimes. So how this works is if the sun is the main driver, daytime temperatures should rise faster than nighttime temperatures. That's when the radiation is coming in from the sun. That's when it's doing a lot of the heating. And thus this range, the daily temperature range, which is just the difference between the hottest time of day and the coldest time of night, that should increase over time, right? Days are going up faster. On the other hand, kind of like a good down blanket, if, if greenhouse gases are trapping heat, the, the, the kind of fundamental physics of this suggests that nighttime should actually warm faster than daytimes, and thus that range should shrink over time. So this is cool. Now, based on some very simple physics between the sun and the greenhouse effect, we have a prediction. We can look at now the data and see what, which of these the data support. All right, so here's daytime temperatures. And of course, daytime temperatures are rising, just like annual temperatures. Here are nighttime temperatures, also rising. Seems to be rising faster than daytime temperatures. Let's look at the range and see whether it's increasing or decreasing. And indeed, the range is shrinking over time. So this is an example of a climate fingerprint that climate scientists do. And there are a couple of dozen of these in, in different um, systems around the globe now. So we can rule out the, the sun in this fingerprint. Now. The, the other question is, how much are greenhouse gases, are human emissions of greenhouse gases causing climate change? So for this case, um, this is 
sort of summarized by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, what I'm showing you here, this is temperature change here on this axis in, in degrees centigrade. And this black bar is the observed warming since pre-industrial. It's about 0.7 to 0.8 centigrade, roughly a degree and a half Fahrenheit. And this green bar is how much Arrhenius already knew, how much the physics of greenhouse gases should heat up the planet. This yellow bar is all the other stuff we put in the atmosphere. It's soot, it's pollution, it's some of the other gases and particles that are not greenhouse gases. And then this orange bar is all the, the combined effects of human emissions into the atmosphere. And of course, as you can see pretty clearly, the human effect and the actual observed warming line up very, very closely. On the other hand, any sort of natural forcings, which means natural drivers, that might be the sun, that might be volcanoes. As you can see, our best available evidence is there's essentially really no change and no drivers that could possibly account for the observed warming. So with reasonably high confidence, we can say humans are behind pretty much all of it. Um, thus, for all of these reasons that I've kind of walked you through tonight, the, the kind of understanding among, among climate scientists is very, very high. That this, these are eight different studies quantifying the scientific consensus around climate change. And we're talking, you know, 97 to 99%. Um, I actually did one of these studies uh, as I was, I was kind of interested in this uh, about a decade ago, and I'm happy to talk about that. I've never received more hate mail in my life than doing a study like that. So, very interesting experience. Okay, so let's talk, switch gear and talk about forests. And I absolutely love talking about trees because they are so, such cool organisms. Um, obviously in, in the Rockies, we have a really iconic landscapes that are structured and, and um, really uh, just majestic due to these forests and aspens are, are a huge part of that. Uh, Utah, it's now the state tree of Utah, my kind of adopted home. Um, they realized in 2013 that having the state tree of Utah be the Colorado blue spruce was kind of a silly thing, right? <laughs> so I think they made a pretty good change in picking aspen, trembling aspen as the state tree. What's also neat is it's, it's a clonal organism. So it's right in a given aspen stand, all of these aspen trees are connected by the roots and are genetically the same creature. Uh, and that makes it with some debate with a fungus in France, but I, I think it's probably, got, it's gotta be the tree. Um, <laughs> the largest organism on planet Earth, right? Sorry, this is actually a, a clone in Utah that's the largest organism on Earth, the Pando clone. Um, it's about 100 acres and thousands of individual stems. Um, it weighs several, I believe it weighs several hundred tons of actual biomass is this organism. Also kind of wild, these clones, many of them are ancient, that as best we can tell, any single tree in an aspen clone is maybe 100 to 150 years old, but the clone itself can be thousands of years old. And these, these large clones, this pando clone, was estimated to be between 10,000 and 100,000 years old. That would also make it the oldest organism on planet Earth, right? Super cool. It's very, it's, Hard to get a precise estimate because there's a lot of um, challenges to doing these studies, but 
really, really incredible organisms. So let's think a little bit about their future. And I want to talk about a little bit of each of these today, what, what I call the triple threat to Western forest drought, pests, in particular beetles, and fire. And the drought part is really not too surprising to us, but here are the fundamental pieces of the equation, right? So here's Lake Powell, and we can actually see the combined effect of drought on the Colorado River Basin with this bathtub ring, that since Lake Powell filled up, especially following some major droughts, it's continued to fall. Um, and the key pieces of drought for both our water resources and for trees in the West is that we're expecting declines in snowpack and earlier snowmelt in a given year. And in addition, hotter temperatures suck more water out of the landscape. Uh, a hotter air pulls more water out of the soils, out of the plants, and out of reservoirs. So when you put these two pieces together, our hydrological models and our climate models suggest that in many regions of the globe, and especially here in the Southwest, we're expecting more frequent, more intense, and more severe droughts. Just a, a, here's a snapshot of these trends in spring snowpack to date for the Western US. And the, the way to read this graph is, is red circles are declines in spring snowpack, blue circles are increases, and then the size of the circle is proportional to the decline in spring snowpack. So this largest circle is an 80% decline in spring snowpack. Pretty clear snowpacks are declining across the West, right? So how does this connect then into forests? I think um, one reason that a lot of scientists are, are really starting to get concerned about forests is we've started to see far too many sites like this that are regional scale forest die-off events. This looks like autumn, but these are all actually pine trees, right? These are lodgepole pines in British Columbia. And it's this wide, widespread mortality event. Uh, we've, seen pick, we've seen basically this in many different tree species across the West in the past two decades. So these are lodgepoles in British Columbia, lodgepoles in Colorado, aspen in Utah, and then pinyon pine in New Mexico. Um, globally, people have been trying to, to synthesize and come up with how much are we seeing forests die off around the globe. And we don't have really great numbers, but what we do have isn't very... Uh, uh, isn't very good news. So each one of these dots is a scientific study that has documented a regional scale tree mortality event linked to temperature or to drought stress. These big ovals are kind of large networks of plots, so they don't, they don't lend themselves to a single dot very cleanly. So you can see basically in, in more or less all of Earth's forested biomes and all continents, we've seen tree mortality events in the past several decades. We don't see as much in kind of the tropical regions, probably because people aren't looking as much, right? We're, there's a lot more scientists in the US and Europe, and thus there are a lot more studies. So um, there, there certainly are likely some tree mortality events going on in the tropics as well. Uh, the, coming back to my Colorado road here, uh, the, the tree mortality event that I spent quite a while studying is called Sudden Aspen Decline, or SAD for short. Um, it's it's not, my, not my acronym, but I think it's a, a pretty good one. 
Uh, and this is kind of what it looks like. So it's, it's, you can see that these are dead aspen trees. This is in the middle of summer on Grand Mesa. And here's some more patches of dead aspen, more patches of dead aspen. That's actually mountain pine beetle right there. So this is a, a pretty wide uh, array of, of tree death. And um, when we started out our research, what was known about sudden aspen decline was mostly from work that the Forest Service had done. So this is standing on the ground in one of these declining aspen stands. And the Forest Service every year flies a plane over the national forest and tries to uh, document areas where there are a lot of dead trees. And so this is the 2008 survey of Colorado's national forest. So white is where the plane flew, green are the national forests themselves, and then the red dots or the red polygons are where sudden aspen decline was detected by those planes. Only aspen? Only aspen. This is only showing you aspen decline. Um, it's the only thing that would look a little bit more red is if I showed you the mountain pine beetle, but that's, that's even more of a red picture. So the, the estimate from these plane flights is that sudden aspen decline has probably affected about 8% of Western US aspen and is far and away the most severe in Western Colorado, affecting up to about a fifth, a little under a fifth, 17% of our forests. Unlike some of these other tree mortality events, sudden aspen decline doesn't seem to have much of a role of pests or pathogens. That there's a suite of secondary things that feed on sick trees, but really nothing that seems to be um, kind of lethal or damaging to these aspen. Pretty worryingly for the future of these forests, and you can actually see it quite well in this picture, normally when a fire comes through or if we timber harvest aspen, they, they come back in a thicket, right? They re-sprout from that common root network and it comes back in a thicket. And in these dying stands, almost nothing's coming up, right? These, this is just all grass in the understory. And so this very little regrowth, we think, is pretty tightly linked to the fact that the root network seems to be dying as well. So as the overstory canopy is dying, the root network seems to be dying back, which again is pretty anomalous. You don't see that in a fire. You don't see that as conifers take over or any of these other dynamics. So, what we wanted to tackle was how much could the drought be due to, is it possible that this severe drought uh, prior to the aspen decline might be causing it? And so we first went to some climate data and collected the rainfall data for 51 aspen forests across Colorado. And that's what you're seeing here from basically 1900 to 2010. Uh, this is standardized to the average. So zero is the average here. Um, blue is the year-to-year -year wiggles and black is the kind of five-year average. And what you can see is, this is kind of well below zero, that's the drought that, we're look, that we were looking at, right? This is the 2000 to 2003 drought, really kind of peaking in its most severe in 2002. Now, What's pretty interesting is as you look at the rainfall going back over time, this is total precipitation, so rain and snow, 2002 was a drought year and it was pretty bad, but it actually wasn't the worst drought in the past 100 years. That there were droughts that were really pretty close to as bad in the 50s and then the Dust Bowl droughts that were actually a little bit drier in terms of rain, none of which were known to have caused these types of tree mortality events. But rainfall is only one piece of the story. So let's look at temperature at the same time. And now again, this is 
standardized to the average, so above zero is hotter temperatures. Now we start to see that actually this drought co-occurred with some of the warmest temperatures on record. And remember how I told you hot temperatures suck more water out of the soil, and for actually other reasons, they're a little bit physiologically more stressful for trees. So I'm gonna put these two together now into a common drought metric that a lot of uh, farmers use, a, an agricultural drought metric called the Palmer Drought Severity Index. It's one of the most common drought indices. And anything below zero is drought, is, is drier conditions. So now let's look at this drought index over the past 110 years. Now we can see when you account for and realize that this drought happened with hot temperatures, suddenly you do start to see the most severe drought in the historical record. So because this drought was really made worse and, and kind of made lethal by the temperature component, we call this, and, and many scientists have called this, a climate change type drought. This is really the drought of the future, the drought that we're going to see a lot more of, even if rainfall stays the same in the Western US. So what my research group does is try to figure out how does drought affect trees, and can we understand the physiology of this to actually make forecasts about our future forests. So we do, field, we do experiments in the field. We've kind of put this section of aspen forest under a mock drought. We've built these troughs that are funneling water off, funneling rainfall off of this. Uh, I, my parents sometimes call us tree torturers. We stress trees out in the name of science. Um, we do lab experiments where we can kind of more closely control what happens to the trees. And we do a lot of measurements of sick and dying trees in the field. I, I think a little bit of this, it's like tree coroners or, or tree doctors. We're looking at sick trees and trying to figure out what is wrong. And one of the main questions we tried to grapple with initially is how do trees die from drought? Um, and what we found was is that it's more or less the tree um, equivalent of a heart attack. So how this works is Trees have to pump water up to their leaves to do photosynthesis. And unlike mammals that have kind of an active pumping heart, right, that moves fluid around, trees are pulling the water up by, by losing water from the leaves. And that water, like a spring being pulled tighter and tighter, is under tension. And the tension goes up as you go higher and higher into the canopy. Now, during most conditions, that's fine for a tree. The mechanism works really well, does photosynthesis, and the forest grows. During droughts, the soil is dry, the atmosphere is hot and is sucking a lot of water out, and so that tension gets higher and higher. That spring gets pulled more and more taut until at a certain point, at a certain level of tension, starts to break. These water columns start to snap and tiny little air bubbles shoot in and block these cells. Um, these air bubbles are called embolisms. So this, we have learned, um, seems to be one of the main ways that aspen trees are dying during drought, that they're having these tensions get so high that these embolisms are shooting in and blocking their water transport system. Uh, it's a process sometimes called hydraulic failure. Now, what's kind of cool is you can, well, kind of interesting, you can actually hear this happen. If you put a really sensitive microphone up to a tree on a hot summer day, you can hear pops and pings as these air bubbles shoot in. It sounds a little bit like popcorn. I have a recording of it. 
somewhere and you you can that's how they first detected this process initially is that you can hear when these bubbles block because um, it's under such high tension that the water's really kind of snapping as these bubbles come in. So our goal is to use this physiological knowledge to try to figure out what's the future of the west of western US forests uh, and in particular we started with Aspen. So what we do is this is a, a snapshot of all the different uh, water transport uh, pipes, these xylem pipes. And so we're, we're really um, just at the point now where we can actually try to launch this and do this at large scales, where we can take the fundamental physiology of how trees die, we can connect it and really test it against our experiments that we've done in the field, in the lab, and then ultimately with these two, we build them into a model of how forests grow. So this is showing you all these trees that are growing and they're competing against each other, they're shading each other out, they're dying. And ultimately, this model is driven fundamentally by climate. It's driven by the rain and the temperature and the sun until ultimately where we're headed with this, and I think we're getting, getting close to having some good, uh, some good estimates of this at a, at, a, at a regional scale is to look at the risk. What species are at risk, what regions are at risk, and which species might be more resilient and might survive in future climates. I'm gonna change gears and talk just a little bit now about the other two of the triple threats uh, to Western US forests. So beetles are of course a huge one and, and one we're quite familiar with in Colorado. Uh, this is a tree getting attacked by mountain pine beetle and it, these are all the different pitch tubes where the tree is trying to suffocate and kill the beetle with its defenses. And in the case of the mountain pine beetle, it's really seemed to be this kind of perfect storm of um, factors that has let this, this unprecedented explosion. It really does seem to be unprecedented in the modern record um, where two pieces of climate change come in, in particular drought stress that de depletes the tree's defenses and warmer winters that help the beetle populations grow and spread, and also hot and dry summers, I guess, along with the drought, combined with some legacies of land management in the West, that we have a lot of dense and even aged forests that are really the perfect breeding ground for beetles to spread across the landscape. So um, this is uh, west-wide, the mountain pine beetle is, is maybe one of the, the most um, deadly things in our forests that you can actually see over uh, the 2000 to 2010 period, Colorado's forests were the only state in the union that lost biomass, largely due to the mountain pine beetle, as well as some other things like the aspen die-off. So um, pretty profound driver in our forests. And then the final piece are wildfires. And the science here on wildfires has actually been advancing really, really rapidly. So what we expect with climate change is more frequent fires, more intense fires, longer individual fire durations, and longer fire seasons. And if you look at this, you can see this in the area burned in the Western US. So this is showing you the area burned by large fires since the 60s and it's reasonably low. There's a lot of year-to-year -year bounces due to weather, but there's this large trend, especially in the 90s and 2000s. And this, this study actually stopped in 2005. It's, it's continued quite a lot, of course, as we're all 
aware and have seen in our, in our backyards. And it has some strong commonalities with the drought story here. So a key piece of these fires also ties to our snowpack. And what these folks found is this is showing you all the fires that occur in late snowmelt years versus early snowmelt years. And every, every dot here is a fire and, every, and the size of it is the kind of proportional scale. Obviously it's not the absolute scale because we're not, not burning the ocean. Um, but it's a really clear picture, right? In years where we have high snowpacks and late snowmelts, we get relatively few and mostly small fires. In years where we have low snowpacks and early snowmelts, we get more and larger fires. And we now have been able to do some, some pretty neat studies actually teasing out how much is climate change driving our fires. And this is a really cool study that came out about two years ago where they did a really detailed look about looking at how much fires we'd expect in a world without climate change versus the world that we have with climate change. And their big conclusion was climate change is behind about half of the area burned in the Western US in a given year. And we don't, you know, one in every two acres is largely driven by climate change, but individual fires are, have a lot of random chance. This is kind of at this, the scale of the Western US. So we can see climate change affecting our forests already. And it's no surprise to us, right, that this, this will affect our local uh, economies and our local communities. So the economic impacts you can see in, in terms of uh, timber, tourism, skiing, hunting and fishing, obviously wildfire risks are big risks to our community. And, and one that is, makes sense when you think about it, there are pretty big effects on water quality when forests go downhill, that when pine beetles move in or when a fire burns through a landscape, the water in our streams and the water quality goes down a lot. And that affects, of course, us and you know, the creatures like fish that depend on this water. All right, so now we come to uh, a couple of stages of good news in this. And I want to come back to our house metaphor where We've talked now about some of the risks that climate change is posing and will pose to Western US forests. And so the fundamental question is, what are we gonna do about those risks? What is our insurance policy for climate change and for Western US forests? So some of the good news is, is that a lot of the pieces are, a lot of the, the arrows that we need in our quiver are falling into place. This is showing you the price of a solar panel per watt here in red over time. And then this is the global solar panel installations. And the price of a lot of these technologies that we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is falling really rapidly. That's excellent news. It is worth pointing out that, that the technology alone at this pace is not gonna get us anywhere near the sorts of reductions in emissions to avoid some of the worst case scenarios. Other pieces of good news are, as far as climate scientists can tell, so far, we haven't crossed any thresholds of really ugly impacts, really catastrophic impacts. This might be melting of Greenland or Antarctic ice sheets that would flood cities around the world. This might be melting of permafrost or loss of the Amazon rainforest that would really speed up climate change. So far, we don't seem to have crossed some of those really bad thresholds. Second piece of good news is we're largely in control of our own future, right? That what humans decide to do, what all of us and, and society decides to do is really the fundamental determinant of our own future. 
Another piece of good news is we have a lot of different arrows in the quiver, a lot of different ways to reduce our climate risk, many different technologies and policy options. And with many of these, there's often a lot of co-benefits that we end up with. We end up with cleaner air or a lot savings through energy conservation. So that's, that's also good news. And I think the, the key thing to remember is in addition to a good insurance policy, a lot of these things can be a huge economic opportunity and the chance to really be kind of leading one of the dominant industries of the 21st century. So I think that's worth keeping in mind um, amidst some of these uh, dire forecasts if we, if we don't act. So on the individual level, there's of course things that we each of us can do and I'm sure many of you are doing uh, many of these actions. These are kind of more efficient use of the energy that we have, uh, using or consuming less energy. And finally, kind of collective action through policy at many different levels. So uh, getting involved in, in local, state, or national policy is, I think, a really key and important way to um, collectively tackle climate change. Now let's talk about forests in particular. What are some of the things that we know with very high confidence? First, for Aspen, it's a pretty water-loving tree in a dry landscape in the West. Uh, it's, as, you, as you can see, where, based on where it's found, it really needs water. And we know that temperatures are going to go up in the West in the 21st century, and that hotter temperatures really make droughts more stressful and more lethal. It's, it's pretty clear that we're gonna see more of these droughts in the future, and that's likely to bring more aspen mortality. One of the ways that species can um, try to avoid and cope with climate change is to move uphill, to kind of track their optimum temperature and keep pace with those cool uh, or wet climates that used to inhabit. Um, that's actually a little easier in the mountains than it is anywhere else, so they can kind of move up uh, in some cases to keep pace with it, but there's a key catch, right? Which is that you can only go up so far, you can only go uphill so far in the mountains. Eventually, you either hit another forest or you hit tree line. And there are species, pika are a really nice example, that have been already pushed off the tops of mountains, that their populations have gone extinct in certain areas because they hit the top of where they could go. So I think it's pretty clear to say that um, we're going to lose aspen from some regions in the west, and it's going to be especially prominent at low elevations and drier places. Uh, this is a really predominant pattern we've seen in the aspen mortality to date, that it's been um, at, at lower elevations, at south-facing slopes, and at kind of the southern edges in the southern Rockies more than the northern Rockies. Now, there's some big unknowns that we don't know, and this is some of the uh, places where uh, scientists are rushing to try to answer this. And one question is how much can genetic diversity help buffer for us? And are there certain trees or certain clones that have really good drought tolerance genes that might help them persist and survive in a drier landscape? Second, and kind of fundamental to this idea of moving uphill, how fast can species do it and can they keep pace with climate change? Um, here, Aspen's at a little bit of a disadvantage because regrowing by your roots is a very slow way to move, right? Growing uphill is much, much slower than sending seeds long distances uphill. Third, and this is pretty, pretty fundamental and there is a lot of work going on this, 
can, can we sort of take management actions to really build more climate resilient forests? And I'll talk about that next. And then fourth, kind of more broadly, what do future forests look like in terms of which species are going to come in and which species are going to persist? And should we be trying to encourage and grow uh, for maintaining our, our forests in the coming century? Uh, this is just a, a snapshot of what some of our tools to date suggest. So this is showing you the, this map is the suitable climate space. It's basically the suitable conditions for Aspen based on where it's found today. And red areas are very good suitability. They're very high suitability. And yellow areas are kind of marginal suitability. And these black lines are some estimates of where Aspen are actually found. So you can see Aspen are really prominently found in their suitable climate. Uh, I'm gonna show you next some projections for that suitable climate space. And there's gonna be three columns. The first column will be the 2030s and then the 2060s and then the 2090s. And each row is a different climate model and a way, it's just a way to think about a different possible scenario of how the future might work out. So here's the 2030s, pay attention to the amount of red and yellow on this, the 2060s and the 2090s. So based on these estimates, the amount of suitable habitat, suitable climate space for Aspen is projected to shrink between 40 and 90% by the end of the century. That's a, that's a big number, but it's also a pretty wide ranging number. And one of the things that we're really hoping to do with our next generation of models that's based on this physiology is we wanna know, is this gonna be closer to 30 to 50% or 80 to 90% and where? The same story is roughly true for a lot of our dominant conifers. So this is, um, showing you four of our major conifer species. Red is ponderosa, blue is Engelmann spruce, green is lodgepole pine, and orange is dug fir. And here's the, the suitability for today's climate. Um, and here's the projected suitability towards the end of the century in the 2060s. So these conifers are gonna feel some of the same squeeze that Aspen are, right? They really need cool and wet conditions in a hot and dry west and those conditions are gonna sort of disappear uphill and northward quickly. Now, how can we manage for climate resilient forests? This is kind of, this is some of the things we've learned to date. And one of the interesting findings is it really seems like more diverse forests, both in terms of more species and different age classes, different structures seem to be more resilient to stress, right? And the mountain pine beetle is that good counterexample where all the lodgepole pines, it's one species and one age class, and that lets the beetles sweep through. Second, and this kind of makes intuitive sense to, to I'm sure most of us, is that being proactive and trying to anticipate climate change and where these uh, huge disturbances might happen is likely to be much better than reactive management after the beetle has come through, after the fire has already burned. Um, but this takes resources and really letting our land management agencies be able to do this instead of fighting fires the whole time. For Aspen specifically, maintaining high elevation Aspen habitat and north facing slopes is really going to be a, a crucial um, buffer, a crucial area for Aspen to persist on our landscapes. Uh, also, there's some interesting work done that it seems like in some cases, as aspen are starting to die, if you can 
go in pretty quickly and respond and actually cut out the dead trees, there's, in some cases, you can trigger regrowth of aspen and get them to come back up um, before this root network dies. And so that's why there's this window of opportunity to act. And if you wait a decade and the root network has died, nothing comes up. It tends to be headed towards a meadow. Now, it is a good point about whether long-term these areas will be habitable for aspen. And again, that will fundamentally be determined by how much climate change occurs. And then finally, there's some at least preliminary evidence that reducing the, the pressure, the grazing and browsing pressure from particularly cattle and elk can really help these aspen suckers get established and come up in areas where you're trying to get them back. So with that, I want to thank a lot of the scientists that I've collaborated with, and especially a number of the students who've helped me over the years, both high school and undergraduate students, um, the, the funding agencies that really make my research possible. And uh, thank you all for coming. I'm happy to take questions. This is the end of that road, by the way. That's the end of that Colorado Mountain Road. Yeah. Yeah, just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you screen back evaporation to yield change, and maybe how they're they're measuring it, and how they're expecting to see it there in the future. Sure. Yeah. Um, so. How much water gets um, evaporated from any any surface that's that's moist? Uh, is, is a function of two things. It's a function of the humidity of the air, and obviously, right, less humidity, it can suck more water out of the land. Um, and it's a function of the temperature. And what's pretty interesting is uh, it's, a, it's a linear function of humidity. So humidity, you know, a 10% drop in humidity is gonna take roughly, you know, something like 10% more uh, evaporation but it's a nonlinear uh, function of temperature. So every degree change in temperature, you actually evaporate more and more water. Um, interestingly, with climate change, we're not expecting humidity to change globally, that roughly the relative humidity the, um, is, is gonna be pretty much the same as it was, but the evaporative demand is gonna go up because it's that nonlinear function of temperature. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Yes. Yeah, sure. Uh, could you uh, repeat the name of the process when uh, the air embolisms come in and block the uh, water coming in? Yeah. So uh, it's called two things. They're, they're really synonyms. We either just call it embolism of the xylem or cavitation is the other term. And they mean the same thing, that these air bubbles are shooting in and blocking that, the, that water transport. So if I'm looking at a mountainside covered in aspens and there's like a patch that's all the same color green, it's in the fall, and there's a patch that's all the color, same color green, then maybe orange and a different color yellow, is it fair to say that each one of those individual clumps of uniform color are an individual clone? It's a pretty good bet. So the, the way prior to modern genetics, the way we used to figure out uh, or try to figure out clones is with that method. either. Uh, when they turn color in the fall or when they leaf out in the spring. So if you look in the spring, you know, there'll be certain patches that are leafing and certain that aren't yet. And it's probably true that those are different clones. Now, modern genetics um, has really been 
uh, kind of eye-opening in that we used to think that these clones were like little puzzle pieces that they didn't overlap and they had kind of partitioned a mountainside. And it turns out with modern genetics, it's a, wide, it's a wild, wild world that there's a lot more kind of intermixing of these clones. Um, and I was just talking to these guys in the back that um, there are even root networks sometimes that have no above ground stems. Uh, uh, they call them zombie clones because it seems like there's no trees above ground and they've just grafted and fused with other clones below ground. Um, so it's, we've learned some interesting, fascinating things, but to a first order, yeah, different, different colors or different patches are probably mostly different clones. So the classic uh, aspect scenario is evergreens on the north facing slope, conifers on the north facing slope and aspens on the south facing slope which I have always equated with the fact that aspens like it warmer and drier, but you're saying that aspens actually like water, so why are they on the south-facing slope? And if the whole scenario happens, as you say, will the <laughs> aspens walk around to the other side as the uh, coniferous die out because it's too hot? Yeah, so they, they're on the south-facing slope at high elevation. If you go down to low elevation, they're usually on the north-facing slopes or in the drainages, right? So they, they're wetter, they, they're water-loving trees much more than some of our low-elevation conifers, right? Pinion and juniper and ponderosa pine. But they're not, they can go drier than some of these high-elevation conifers. So the, the spruces and the firs are what you're saying are often on the north slope. So um, they're, they're kind of halfway in between, right? There's conifers that need more water and then conifers that need less water on either side. Um, yeah, we actually think that that's going to be one of the ways that we'll keep aspen on our landscape is by having the ability for them to be on north-facing slopes. And um, if they'll be able to move fast enough to get there is kind of a big unknown, and it may take some amount of management to try to, to you know, clear those areas or something like that. So, so the aspen also is a uh, initial regrowth species after disturbance or fire? and uh, the conif conifers are more of a climax species, correct? So a, a conifers will eventually, if, this, if the aspect and the water, blah, 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 is all correct, the conifers will eventually crowd out uh, and shade out the aspens on the other side of the hill, or anywhere in, for that matter. In some yeah. regions, yes. Yeah. So um, that, that kind of, like I was saying on this, you know, modern, some of the modern genetics and, and modern pollen studies have, have helped us realize <clears throat> we used to think aspen was only an early stage tree, right? That eventually conifers always won out. And there are many regions where that's true, but we've learned actually now that there are probably plenty of regions in the Rockies where aspen is the end stage forest type. So um, you can look at pollen records in lakes and go back in time and see that in some of these watersheds, um, aspen was the dominant forest type for thousands of years. So it, it's, I guess the world is a complicated place and that's right in many places, but not all. Right. So it's lo locale dependent. Yes. That yes. scenario. Yes, exactly. Uh, given that um, these are clones mm -hmm. and that when you see an aspen stand in decline, you're seeing um, some of the larger tree trunks that are standing, then it takes more water to support a large tree than a sprout. Yeah. Would, it, would one a management um, response to seeing stressed um, aspen clones be to go in 
and clear cut all of the bowls mm -hmm. depending upon that root clone to then shoot uh, sprout. Yes, yes. I, I, there has been some studies done by the Forest Service that suggest that that does seem to work. As long as enough of the root network is still alive, it does seem like they'll come back. And interestingly, you're right, the, a lot of the smaller and younger clones seem to have dodged that early 2000 drought, that it is the, some of the larger and more mature stems and clones that died at, at much higher rates. Yeah. Huh. Uh, Bill, just thinking about that um, rather frightening array of images on the 2030, 2060, 2090 mm -hmm. time frame, which seems in our human lifespan a long time, but it's, we, as we know, just a just a one tick of the clock of geologic time. So if you take a longer look, um, are there studies ab about what is moving in as mm -hmm. those um, trees that we now know uh, um, as familiar inhabitants of that territory are, are in decline? What's coming in or are we destined is your next photograph, uh, your next image going to be, tw you know, in 2150, is it, are we in alpine deserts? Right. No, it's, that's a great question. So we, it's, it's varied a lot by the mortality event. So in the mountain pine beetle, there seem to be a lot of trees coming in and it's, it's young lodgepoles coming up. It's some of the spruces that were there already. Uh, and in some cases, it's some aspen coming up that weren't weren't there before. Um, in the case of aspen, all of in all of our plots and data, there seems like that there's essentially nothing coming in. That these areas seem to be headed towards grasslands or meadows. That you see some shrubs, uh, snowberry, and maybe a little bit of oak, but um, there's no other trees coming in. You know, ponderosa pine is often a little bit is kind of the forest type below it. And we haven't seen ponderosa coming into these areas yet. Um, ponderosa takes some very peculiar conditions to, to kind of have a, a seeding event, and um, that hasn't happened yet. I think, I think we're going to lose forests from, uh, from some areas, but in many of these disturbances and fires, trees will come back. But it won't be the tall, old-growth, majestic trees, right? It'll be kind of young, um, weedy thickets. Yeah. 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 I was just wondering, when we look back at that sawtooth of the earth breathing and more sequestration happening as trees leaf out, mm -hmm. are we seeing an impact on that annual cycle? Has there been enough tree death so far that we're seeing less carbon sequestered on an annual basis? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so the, the short answer is no, you can't see it in the global atmosphere yet, um, which, is, which is good news. Uh, and what that graph doesn't show you very clearly is that um, forests globally actually take up about a quarter of human emissions of CO2. So uh, every, you know, one in every four molecules that humans put up there comes back down and is locked up in trees. So currently at a, at a global scale, Trees are still a net carbon sink. They're still a net um, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. Now, the, the reasons for concern and why scientists are worried about this is the sheer number of these drought events. 
And in some of these ecosystems like the Amazon, you actually start to see that carbon sink weakening. So basically trees in the Amazon, uh, which you know the Amazon is a huge, huge biome for, for carbon, um, are starting to grow less and less well. And so that kind of weakening of these big carbon sinks, um, these are all I would say sort of the warning signs that are flashing on the, on the dashboard. Yeah. I'm kind of curious about this, the, the idea of the aspen trees kind of moving around the mountain and up. Mm -hmm. How do you chart the rate of, I guess, tree migration, <laughs> if that's a way to sort of say it? Um, particularly my understanding of the aspens is that sometimes they seed, but infrequently. Yes. So what's right. sort of the, how do you chart something kind of so delightfully chaotic? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a really, yeah, it's a tough question. The, so you can see, if you come up to a clone, oftentimes, you know, at the edge of a meadow, you'll see this like slope of smaller and smaller trees, right? And there it's clear that the clone is kind of expanding out into the meadow. And um, we actually did a study where we aged each one of those trees to kind of figure out the rate of movement per year. Um, it's, it's slow, as you might imagine. <laughs> the speed at which roots grow is, is slow. Um, but these, these uh, episodic and, and somewhat rare, but not still possible events, right, of where seeds sprout. And um, because aspen is a, is a poplar and has these, you know, kind of cottony seeds, that's really hard to figure out. And um, you can do it, people have done it with genetic tools. So especially if a fire burns an area and you see some trees coming up in the middle of the fire scar, um, people have done some genetics and figured out that's actually a seed. That was a seed that came up, not somebody's root. And you can dig it up, right, and find that there's no root underground. Um, so we can do it occasionally, especially where there's a fire and you can see where things have gone. But on the like natural landscape and figuring out how many of these seeds might land, it's really, really hard. You know, at this point, it's kind of just like checking back every few years to see where the suckers have popped up, kind of. Yeah, it is. And, you know, um, Aspen really takes a special set of conditions for the seeds to sprout, and it tends to be two to three years of really wet conditions. And so that's um, how, how often that happens in the future is we, d we, won't, we don't really know. Yeah. So the implication being that they'll also be seeding less with droughtier at least at, conditions? At least at dry sites, yeah, at least at low elevation and south slopes. Nice warm welcome. Uh,